If you would, please open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. It's been a great blessing to go through the book of Esther, and uh, I trust it's a blessing for you, but I got to be honest, I always think it's much more of a blessing for the preacher uh, to spend several days and, and, and time in God's word. And, and I trust that some of that blessing will, will come through as well for you. And you get to see the wonder of God's word. But open up to Esther chapter 6. I'll read it in its entirety. And then I'll, I will pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Well, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless your word. Help us now to have spiritual insight. Help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see and to know that your word is good And help us, O Lord, to delight in your perfect and precious word. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is it that keeps us anchored in the world? What I mean by this 
is that life is so uncertain at times. There are so many things and variables that we can't plan for. There are so many things that we can't see ahead of time. Otherwise, we would plan for each and every one of them. And that's something that every single person on this earth knows. And many people conclude from that that life is rather chaotic. They look around them and they they think the world is a series of big forces and they are small people and they're perhaps swept back and forth. And there's perhaps a sense of helplessness that we can consider when we uh, think in this way. And so... How can Christians have a sense of grounding? How can Christians be certain in a world that we're not always certain of? And the answer that the Bible always gives us, and this text is is no exception, is it's the doctrine of God. It's the very character of the God that we worship that makes all of the difference. It's him and his character that grounds us. And we see this very clearly in our text. We come to this text and we mustn't remember there is a sense of great danger. The decree has been sent out. The people of God are going to be slaughtered. Haman is this wicked enemy and now he's even planning on having Mordecai put to death. And yet in spite of this, we see silently even mysteriously in the background, that God is moving. He's acting. Uh, One of the reasons I love this book so much is that even though he isn't mentioned, we see him constantly all throughout this book. And there's three particular things I want us to see about God's character from this text. Three things about him. First, we see God's perfect providence, his perfect providence Secondly, we see God's surprising victories. And then thirdly, we see God's unstoppable will. His unstoppable will. Let's start with the first point, God's perfect providence. Now, this text begins in uh, really a strange place, doesn't it? The king's bedroom. And we're told that it's a night that the king can't sleep. Look with me at verse 1. It says, on the night that the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before him. Now we should ask, what night is is the author mean when he says, on that very night? Well, he's talking about the same night that Haman is plotting to kill Mordecai, that he's come up with his grand plan and has now constructed a gallows 70 feet tall by which he can hang or impale Mordecai upon it. And we come across a strange thing, or at least it seems rather random. The king can't sleep, and and I don't know what you do when when you can't sleep, but the king does what I do, and I'm sure several other people do, They begin to read. Or if you're a king, you have somebody read to you. I know that uh, one of the great blessings in in my marriage is that Lisi and I really enjoy to read books together. And uh, it's almost funny that Lisi knows every few pages as she's reading, she has to poke me and say, are you still awake? Are are you still with me? Because it's a great way to fall asleep. And I I highly recommend it uh, if you have trouble sleeping. 
So the king does this, and he gets out a book and requests for the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And you might be thinking, well, what is that? And to put it very simply, it's a book that details all of the momentous events that relate to the king and to the king's court. So he's essentially reading a book about himself. He's reading a book about his own ancestors. And it's there that he picks up and learns about an important story. Look at me at verse 2. It says, And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, let me jog your memory just a little bit, because it's been a few weeks. Do you recall in the second chapter of Esther? It's right after Esther had become the queen. There was a seemingly random story included right at the tail end of that chapter, and with very few details given to us. And all we know is that Mordecai uncovers a plot somehow that we're not told from these two men who were angry with the king and wanted to kill him or to hurt him. And he tells, he gets them uh, under an investigation and, and they are found guilty and they're put to death. They're judged for that. And then nothing happens. The story just goes on and on. And we don't really see the significance of that event until now. So look with me at verse 3 and what the king says. He says, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing has been done for him. And as the king is thinking about this, he's seeing a problem. It's not good to have such a great deed go uh, unrewarded in a kingdom. Now, I don't want you to think this is just because the king is a really, really swell guy and is really generous and really kind. No, this is politics as usual. To be a good king, you needed to reward good servants because that encouraged good behavior in others. This is how kingdoms operated. And so the king sees this as a problem. He needs to do something about it. And another thing we've seen about the king is that he really never makes any decisions by himself, does he? He always relies on the people around him. Anytime he needs help, anytime he has a question, anytime he needs uh, uh, help solving a problem, he doesn't think about it himself. He just relies on whoever is around him. And so what does he do? He asks his servants, well, who's in the king's court right now? In other words, he's saying, who can I summon to discuss this problem with? Who's, who's available to me? And look at verses 4 and 5. The king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now, as you're reading through these verses, what is the sense that you are getting as you're reading about all of these events? It's a series of, well, seemingly random events, and yet on the other side of the story, from our perspective, they don't strike us as ordinary, random chance events at all. 
They strike us as perfectly executed, each and every single one of them. Right? Think about it for a second. It just so happens that this is a night that Haman is plotting to kill Mordecai. It just so happens that this is a night that the king can't sleep. It just so happens that the king decides to read a book that is the Chronicles. And it just so happens that it's Mordecai's story of saving his life many years ago at this point. It just so happens that he wants to give him a reward right then and there. And it just so happens that Haman is the one that has come into the court and is available for asking being asked advice about this. Think about all of those events. They're not random, are they? There's nothing coincidental, and yet we're seeing that behind these events lies the very mind of God. These are events planned by God. They're willed by God, and we see that they're executed perfectly by God. And notice something else about all of these events. They're all rather boring, small. There's no great miracles. There's no, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. There's no mighty acts going on here. They're everyday things. And what is that showing us? That every single event has a purpose when God is providential. Every single tiny detail of our lives Every single event, every circumstance, he, it is like a quilt that is being sewn together by a master seamstress where every single thread matters. Every color is intentional. Every stitch is important. Or you might consider it like an orchestra that is directed by the top-notch director. And all of the musicians come in right when they're supposed to. And every note harmonizes beautifully with every other note. Individually, every single one of these elements is unimportant. Yet when they're in the hand of God, when they're strung together by his mind, none of them are inconsequential, are they? They're all meaningful. They're all purposeful. They're all intentional. So what does that mean for us? It means we can never discount the small details of our own life. We can never consider anything in this world that happens to us as unimportant, as not valuable in some way. After all, they're in the hands of the providential God. And here, I think, is an anchor for the Christian to rely upon. That no matter how small our lives may seem, and, and i got to tell you, our lives feel pretty small most of the time, pretty unimportant most days, at least in my life. And no matter what we're going through, whether good or bad, we know that everything is being orchestrated by a sovereign God. And it's a great comfort to me that in ways we can't even see or know, God is working in the events in our life God is teaching us, he's helping us, he's protecting us, he's guiding us, he's sanctifying us, he's molding us. And probably in 10,000 ways we could never even think about or imagine in our wildest dreams. Does it give you courage that the small details are purposeful? That they connect? 
that there's a fuller picture on the other side, I think this is what the writer of Esther wants us to see. I mean, think about it again. The situation is hopeless. The people of God seem doomed to die. Mordecai is going to be stuck on the top and killed. And what does the writer of Esther do? He, in a sense, pulls the perspective back. And we see the broader picture. And what was once a hopeless scene becomes a scene where we see our Father's hand at work. And we say, wait a second, He is working. He is ordering these events. We see our God's perfect providence. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is God's surprising victories. We uh, have something of a, of a comedic scene. I've seen uh, many describe this chapter as one of the funny scenes in the scriptures, and no doubt that is true. Look with me at verse 6. It says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, for those with something of a member, something from their 10th grade English class, this is a good example of situational irony where one character and another character think they're talking about the same thing, but they're really not. And the king is wanting to reward Mordecai. And Haman, being Haman, assumes that everything is about him. This doesn't really surprise us, does it? We've already seen that Haman is one of the most arrogant and self-centered people alive. And so he immediately assumes that the king must be talking about him, that the king must want to reward him. And look at how Haman answers this. I'll read uh, his whole uh, answer in verses 7 through 9. He says, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now think about that for a second. What does Haman really want? It's not wealth or power. He's already got all of that. What does he want? He just wants to be known. He wants to be recognized. He wants to be honored. And in this case, he wants to be honored like he is the king himself. Did you notice that? He wants not just any robes, royal robes. He wants the king's horse. He wants the king's crown. He wants public recognition. He wants really to feel like the king for a day. If you were going to come up with a modern day illustration, this would be like me saying, I want Air Force One for the whole day. And I want Secret Service members to walk around me and to, to protect me everywhere I go and to wait on me. And I want to have full access to the White House and go anywhere I want. And I want to see the nuclear launch codes. And I want to know about all the secrets, right? That's basically what he's asking for here. And the king's answer is, well, it's really funny. Look at verse 10. He says, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And 
I think the English does a really good job of translating it, but the Hebrew um, really emphasizes the, the, the naming of Mordecai right at the very end. Almost as if the king says to Haman, that's it, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's the perfect answer, Haman. Get everything you just said. Get the horse, get the crown, get everything. And go do it to Mordecai. Go do it to your worst enemy. I think we could all just imagine Haman's face and the utter shock of being told this by the king. But also notice how fast the situation changes. It changes in a split second, doesn't it? Haman went there to ask to kill the king. Excuse me, to kill Mordecai. And now he's going to be honoring him. Haman won't be mocking Mordecai. Instead, he's going to be going through the city shouting his praises. He's not going to be putting a noose around his neck. He's going to be putting a crown on his head. He's not going to be killing him. He's going to be lifting him up even higher. It's a beautiful irony that he's, in a sense, caught in his own trap. Everything that he so desires is given to his worst enemy. This is the surprising victory of God. And I think it shows us something about God's character. He loves to turn the tide right at the very end. He loves to take a situation that is utterly hopeless, and in a moment, it becomes filled with hope and life. Just consider the Exodus, for example. It's a very dramatic scene, isn't it? As the the people of God are being chased by the Egyptians, and they're, they're with horses and chariots, and they're coming to kill them. And they're been brought up to the end of the road, literally. And then God parts the Red Sea. And he saves them miraculously. He turns the tide, in that case, very literally, at just the right moment. Or perhaps the best example in all of the scriptures is, is nothing else but the cross itself. Because do you have a darker day than the cross? Do you have a more seemingly, seemingly hopeless moment? Satan couldn't have been happier on the moment when he was looking at the Son of God hanging upon the cross, dead and defeated, until the resurrection. And there's this glorious turnaround, the greatest reversal ever constructed, all by the hand of God. This is how our God delights to act. He will not let his enemies win. In fact, he laughs at them. Psalm 2, he laughs at them, he mocks them, he holds them in derision. He stunningly defeats them even when they think that they might have won. And the third point we see for tonight is God's unstoppable will. God's unstoppable will. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. So Haman took the robes. And the horse. And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Here is a defeated man who is ashamed, who is humiliated. That word for mourning can just as well mean weeping and crying and utterly upset. So much so that he's covering his head in shame. And then something even more significant happens. And that's in verse 13. Look with me there. 
It says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before, you, before who you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I think it's a very surprising response. Because just last chapter, they were the ones telling him, well, why don't you just kill Mordecai? Why don't you just get rid of him? And now their answer is the complete opposite. They're saying, Haman, I think you need to give up. I think this is a losing battle. They're seeing something that Haman really isn't seeing yet. And I think the key phrase of that verse is when they say, if Mordecai is of the Jewish people. Now, we've already seen and and heard a number of times as we've been going through the book of Esther that God is never mentioned in this book. But we're meant to see him in all of the gaps. We're meant to see him all throughout. And I think the case is exactly that here. We're meant not just to think about the Jewish people, but the God of the Jewish people. After all, these are uh, God's covenant people. These are the people God has sworn to protect. These are the people God has identified with. These are the people that God has sided with and promised to be with in every way. He's even set his name upon them. And I think the wise men and his wife Zeresh are really on to something. And they tell Haman very plainly, we think you have started to oppose the God of Israel. And this is only the beginning. You have started to fall, Haman, and eventually that fall will be complete. Think about the warning that he's being given. Haman, you're going to lose this. You better stop right now. We're seeing God's will here. It's unstoppable. It's unbeatable. It's unavoidable. And yet Haman is determined to fight on. Notice one thing else here. He's being warned. And any time God is giving a warning to one in their sin, that's also known as grace. Haman is being warned to stop, even by his own family, to turn away from his sins, to stop opposing God's people. And you know what really astounds me? If Haman were to have truly repented on that day, then God would have saved him. And God would have forgiven him of every sin. But he didn't repent. Instead, he stiffens his neck and he doubles down and he becomes obstinate against God and he presses forward in his sin. And I should just remind us that as we're going through Esther, we need to remember that this is a real story. Haman is a real man who really sinned against God and was really warned to turn away from his sin and who really doubled down in his sin and I dare say really is suffering under the judgment of God even today. Haman is one that Jesus described as someone who will be weeping and gnashing their teeth against God. Now why do I say that? Because God will not be mocked. 
He will not be mocked. And those who remain set against God will lose against Him. I think the end of this chapter, the final verse, has something of a, of a foreboding tone. I'll read it. He says, While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. It ends very suddenly. He's warned Haman, stop now or you're going to lose this fight. But before he gets a chance to even think about it, he's almost rushed away to to his final scene that we'll see in chapter 7. The soldiers come and it's, it's him being swept away. He's in, uh, being uh, swept away by the soldiers, something he can't control. And we know that his end won't be good. He will surely fall. What do we do with a text like this? Well, I think the answer is we consider what it says about God. And we worship him. Because haven't we seen in this text that he's a God of perfect providence? Haven't we seen in this text that he's a God who stunningly, miraculously saves his people and defeats his enemies? And he's even a God who warns his enemies. I've been thinking a lot this week as I've been going through this text. How incredible is it that every single believer in Christ was at one time in their life an enemy of God. An enemy bought by Christ, an enemy sealed by the Holy Spirit, an enemy that was bought, whom Christ died for, and redeemed and purchased and called a son and a fellow inheritor alongside him. Every single one of us has been subdued, even when we were enemies of God. And so no matter how God overcomes his enemies, whether by judgment or whether by his grace, this truth stands tall. God's will will happen. God is unbeatable. God will win. And at the end of the day, God will be glorified.